Thank you very much for um, agreeing to talk to us. So, uh, Monica Cuesa, you are the head of social policy at the OECD and an expert on pension reform within the organization. And before joining the OECD, you were a member of the Financial Development Department at uh, the World Bank in Washington, D.C. And my name is John Crowley. I'm the chief of section for research policy and foresight in UNESCO. And among other things, I supervise the work of the UNESCO Inclusive Policy Lab, uh, which is the uh, host of this podcast and which works on knowledge crowdsourcing and its translation into inequality reducing policies. With more than 1,800 members and 700 experts from the knowledge, the public and the social sectors, the lab is primarily concerned with connecting research and data to action on the ground. In addition to its online platform, the lab works through a chain of in-country projects to support shared audits of policies in terms of their inclusiveness, to enhance the flow and the use of evidence in inclusive policies, and to harness participatory data. We may not talk about all of that, but uh, we'll certainly be referring to many aspects of uh, the general terms of reference of the lab um, in light of the work uh, that you're supervising at OECD. So obviously, given when we are discussing, um, this is a lot about what one might call the post-COVID-19 reset, which means one hopes at least, and certainly UNESCO and the OECD are committed to this institutionally, a reset along a more equitable path. The pandemic and the control measures taken in response to it have brought to light and exacerbated the inequalities that were already present in our societies. So simply going back to the status quo ante is unlikely to be adequate. And social protection is clearly key to countering the immediate effects of the crisis in ways that um, I'm sure we'll have the opportunity to discuss, as well as setting us on a more inclusive pattern for the long run once the immediate effects have been uh, worked through. So we'd like to um, discuss with you some concrete measures implemented or recommended or perhaps simply envisaged for uptake to allow for such a recovery. And I noted that you recently wrote about the pre-existing gaps in social protection provisions that are being exposed by uh, the COVID-19 crisis. So if that's okay with you, I'd like to start by that theme. What would you regard as the most important gaps, many um, very long-standing and often well-known at some level, at least within expert communities, that have been really thrown into a sharp light uh, by uh, the crisis and its economic implications. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so uh, the the gaps in social protection were indeed um, long known uh, and uh, also feared to be widening over time, even in very rich OECD countries, which are known to have very comprehensive and very effective social protection systems. Now, um, why is this so? I think first you, it's maybe helpful to take a quick look at the history of social protection systems, the way they, they grew, and they were based on basically the assumption of a, a single earner, male-headed household where the, person, the, the man was working, um, he was providing for his wife, for his children, social insurance was organized around this um, single earner, um, helping the family members to be insured along with the earning male. And, um, and then there was also assumption that people would be working throughout their careers, thus gaining pension entitlements over their 
career and then retiring on a comfortable retirement income, which helped them also provide for the family. Now, this single earner family model is clearly an outdated one. We have more and more single parents, but we also have new um, developments which show that um, this, this stable employment assumption is no longer one that one can automatically make for the future. So when we were discussing pre-COVID already, when we were talking about digitalization, automation, gig work, platform workers, and so on, we kept talking already about uh, the dangers of social protection systems not being able to provide accurately for these people, for workers increasingly hopping from gig to gig without um, getting proper entitlements, either for disability, which is, of course, the biggest risk for platform workers, for example, or in the longer term for pension entitlements. Now, what happened with COVID? Before we were looking at these gaps and kind of thinking, oh, this automation is coming, it's not really happening very quickly, but then it will be coming soon and then there will be lots of people out of work and what are we going to do? But it, it remained a little bit hypothetical. It was something that was out there in the future. Now COVID hit, suddenly with the shutdown of the economy, we're in a completely new situation. Suddenly we have people who have nothing from one day to the next in certain sectors take the culture sectors, take restaurants. And some of the other workers, which we thought were very much in danger, were the ones that were in, in, in highest demand, like the Uber drivers, uh, the, the food delivery people, not Uber drivers, because I guess taxis and so on were not really in demand anymore in lockdown, but food delivery was. And suddenly we were talking about essential workers, which is a completely new classification and giving much more value to, to certain groups of workers. So, so social protection um, had suddenly become a very essential function of for many workers. And um, we saw that in some sectors, self-employed people, for example, from one day to the next went to nothing. And so these, were, these gaps, we knew about them before, were suddenly brought out to the light in the COVID crisis. And I think what's also new about the COVID crisis is that we suddenly see social protection needs of people who were fairly well off before, who were not considered at risk. Take, for example, um, people working in culture, people working in event management, people working for big um, trade fairs. These were people who were making good living. Maybe they had their own company. Maybe they employed a few people. As self-employed people, they were outside of the system in many countries. So they, they were basically providing for their own insurance, but it wasn't really a problem because they were comfortably earning. So from one day to the next, they have zero earnings, but they're not even in the public system. So not only do they have no income, but they also, in order to continue to have social protection, they have to pay private health insurance contributions. They might have pension, private pension arrangements, which also need to be paid, all that on top of even the fact that they have no more income to feed themselves and their family and pay their rent and so on. Um, I th that gives thought in two directions and uh, the two questions are quite different, but let me nonetheless uh, ask them together. Uh, vulnerability to the pandemic and the immediate circumstances of the pandemic, as you've explained, affects uh, certain categories of workers in specific ways due to the uh, modalities by which social rights have been institutionalized in different countries at different times, with an emphasis in particular on uh, the self-employed and uh, small businesses. Um, 
With respect to the recovery period, insofar as we can anticipate it, it's possible that at least some of these sectors might rebound. Obviously, not everyone will benefit, but some will. Your remarks invited two kinds of questions at, at somewhat different levels. One was about the contrast between the crisis phase, uh, the lockdown and the immediate economic consequences of the lockdown, or the equivalent in countries that didn't strictly lock down, and the recovery period. And it's not obvious that vulnerability looking forward to the recovery will be the same. So I was mm -hmm. just in your uh, views on how, in particular, sectors like tourism and culture, um, the vulnerability of which to the lockdown period you uh, define very clearly, uh, might um, benefit or not from uh, the recovery which at some point will come. And then there was a second uh, set of questions, which is about the differences between countries. Uh, you referred to the general background assumptions of welfare systems or social protection systems, which are common across the whole of Europe and North America and in many other places too. On the other hand, there are quite different social protection models within Western Europe, for instance. Three Worlds of Welfare Capitalism, mm -hmm. both the title of a famous book. Do you see some of those models of social protection, which define rights in different ways and connect them differently, in particular to the tax system, for instance, as having proved more robust than others? Is there something to be learned from the specific modes of institutionalization of social rights? Okay. So um, let's start with the first question. Um, what's the future of certain sectors? Uh, that it, I think today it's very difficult to say how um, different sectors will be operating throughout the recovery. I think it is difficult to imagine that um, we would have a world without tourism, for example. I'm sure that uh, there will be a return of tourism, and indeed some countries are already seeing this. Might the tourism be different if you take a country like France? Uh, or many of the European countries that were hard hit, for example, people prefer to stay in the country, partly because they weren't even allowed to go outside of the country or because they felt insecure about going somewhere else. So we might see a different type of tourism, which is much more national and locally based. Um, will we also be seeing, for example, uh, a revolution in, in air fares? Uh, we know that many of the airlines were very hard hit. So we, a lot of the tourism we saw around the world was very much based on very affordable plane tickets. If plane tickets are going to be less affordable, what does that mean? Who are the people who will be traveling? And will that um, make tourism even more national and local because it simply will be less affordable to go abroad? I don't think that these questions are questions concerning social protection, strictly speaking. These are much more questions of something I would almost call industrial policy, which has a bad name, but I think it has, is making a return now because governments are asking themselves these fundamental questions. How do we, how do we want to manage certain sectors. I will give you another example. Again, this is a European example, but we can talk about non-European countries later. Um, there was a lot of outbreak of COVID cases in meat processing plants. Meat processing plants in Europe were always known, along with other agricultural plants, for example, uh, in, 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 meat, in, in fruit picking and seasonal work in, in agriculture, as places 
which um, had bad work conditions, which were on the border of exploitation. People uh, were not well paid. Um, they relied very much on uh, seasonal migrants, often from poorer Eastern European countries, like countries like France or Germany, relied on, on, on cheap labor coming either from Spain or from Eastern Europe. Um, then afterwards, uh, it was said, well, uh, even if these people are badly paid, it's still a big wage compared to what you could make in Bulgaria or Romania, for example. And it was implicitly kind of accepted that this was seasonal, this was not going to last. Suddenly, with the health risks, it was possible to very quickly have this discussion. And in Germany, for example, the law hasn't gone through yet, but there's a law in Parliament that is um, trying to prohibit subcontracting in the meat processing industry. So, so I think this is an interesting example of how the world of work can be changing, triggered by COVID, because suddenly these health risks are making it a risk for everybody and not only the workers concerned. And suddenly policy is powerful and is active. I found that a very, very interesting development. So um, in the culture sector, that's the third sector I would like to mention. I think we have yet another uh, issue. I think there's most countries would agree that the culture sector is one that should have preferential treatment because people like theater, people like uh, music, like uh, performances, um, but also museums and, and, and other cultural institutions. And um, there's, there's different models out there in the world how uh, culture is subsidized by the government or even by the private sector. And again, this is uh, raising the question, what is the best way to protect cultural workers? Should they have unemployment benefits? Should they be in, in, included, uh, even if they're freelancers and artists, should they be included in the formal pension system? All of these um, discussions have been around for many years and countries have answered this in different ways. In some countries, self-employed people are completely integrated into the social protection system. In other countries, they are only, they have patchy protection. So again, this has triggered a, a, a more fundamental and structural discussion about how different groups of workers should be protected. Is that good for the first question? Thank you, very good. Yeah, okay. So for the second, and now for the second question, which um, models of social protection were more adapted to what was happening in the in the COVID crisis? There are clear differences in social protection systems across countries. Uh, we have some countries, um, like for example the United States, where social protection is very basic in terms of what is provided by the government or by state institutions, and there are a lot of reliance on employer-provided um, benefits. Now. The COVID crisis has triggered this, has shown, made, the COVID crisis has made it clear in a very dramatic sense what risks um, exist in such an employer-provided system. Because the workers who were um, furloughed or, or made redundant um, in the United States due to the economic crisis also lost their health benefits. Now, that is just about the worst thing that can happen in a situation where there is um, massive health risk and people have to go to the hospital, people have to go see doctors, people have to go get tested and so on. And um, we should not forget that COVID is not the only health problem that people can have, but that there's other health problems which are also need to be addressed. For example, cancer prevention, um, uh, 
chronic diseases like diabetes, like hypertension, which have not been receiving the attention that um, need that they need uh, on a permanent basis due to the COVID crisis. Already people were scared of going to other hospitals, but in addition, they lost their health insurance coverage. So, so he, he, this clearly shows the limits of employer um, provided uh, social protection, in particular in the health area. Obviously, in a situation where many people are losing work and um, and protection uh, against risks that is somehow based on their employment relationships, whether it's in the social insurance setting or in an employer-based setting, um, those systems are best off that provide everybody with uh, a basic income. Uh, so if you have um, the government paying everybody or providing even benefits in kind, such as food support or or a, a, a health system such as the NHS, the national health system in the uh, in the UK, for example, which is there for the entire population, those those um, systems are best off. So what we also saw in some of the countries which have patchy social protection with with not good minimum income schemes, meaning social assistance, for example, we saw that already during the great financial crisis in Greece and Spain and Italy, um, there was the, a lot of countries took measures to speed up the introduction of minimum income schemes um, so that people would be provided at least with a minimum. Usually in social assistance schemes, you do um, uh, tests for income or for assets to determine whether people are eligible for a benefit. This is something that is, can be administratively a bit cumbersome and it can take some time. So during the COVID crisis, a lot of countries decided we're not even going to worry about this now. We're just going to make sure we get money to the people as quickly as possible. So, so that was another emergency measure that many people um, introduced, many countries introduced in order to make sure um, that people were provided for and didn't find themselves without any income at all. Thank you. That, uh, these issues are extremely important, and actually, I had planned to discuss them at the end. Uh, uh, okay, we can come back to that later if you want. Come back to them. Um, but uh, what you just said does invite one immediate question. I think even before we move to um, to a somewhat different topic, which is precisely the status of these emergency measures, because you can interpret them two ways, obviously. And this is at some level almost a political forecast. There's no technical way of being sure. Um, one possibility is to say that the emergency has really uh, generated a shift in mindset that will be durable in the same way as uh, wars have traditionally transformed social protection systems by realigning uh, perspectives and perceptions on citizenship after the First World War, after the Second World War in many European countries, which means that um, the concern that in the absence of conditionality, incentives to work would be destroyed has at least for a period gone away. Another mm -hmm. possibility, of course, is that emergency measures get rolled back as soon as the emergency is ended so that we can predict at least as a hypothesis, that as soon as possible, systems will try to reintroduce the traditional conditionalities, the traditional means and asset tests and so on, probably in the name of incentives to work. I'm, I'm not asking you, obviously, to, uh, uh, to, uh, to play profit here, but if, if you had to judge based on your experience and knowledge, which of those two scenarios might be the most likely? What, how, how would you judge it as of now, September 2020? 
I think the question of incentives to work has is, is indeed being being looked at a little bit differently now. Uh, what first of all, what I think changed here is that the lockdown was something that was decided by governments. So uh, I think governments also felt an obligation to not blame anybody for not being able to work for whatever reasons. And, and I think that's a new perspective, one that we haven't really seen in the past. Um, and I think we had a almost uniform around the world attitude of governments to say we will do whatever it takes to make sure that uh, things go well and that nobody is left behind or try to, to, to ensure that people aren't left behind in this. Because the, the amounts of money that are being committed um, for uh, people and for short-term work programs and for companies um, in different forms of support are unprecedented. Uh, so uh, I think um, the whole issue of incentives has really been put on the back burner for now. Is it going to come back? I think it is already coming back slowly because now that um, it is clear that we cannot put companies on short-term work support forever, the thorny question arises, how do you withdraw the support? How do you decide um, who should be supported longer? Which are the companies that should be slowly moving into a kind of normal situation again? What are the incentives for those companies to do so? Because um, it's a huge risk to take. Why, why should you be doing this? Um, if you don't, if you're not sure that uh, your, your your company can survive, it's it, it's better to just kind of stay on a short-term work program uh, and not take the risk of of ha get, having reduced support. So I think the the question of incentives is not only one that is posed for workers here, but also for companies. And I think that's also a little bit of a change, but a little bit less individualistic view. Um, in the long term, it's very difficult to say whether um, incentives for work are going to be uh, in the in the center of preoccupations. There there has been some discussion about um, basic income, but uh, but again, I think it's it hasn't been the main preoccupation uh, in the in the crisis now. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for those uh, remarks and. Um, speculation. And I think okay. it's actually good uh, to be able to speculate while recognizing that the basis for speculation is a bit shaky, mm -hmm. uh, not because we are going to predict anything, but because we need to be able to sketch possibilities uh, and scenarios. Mm -hmm. And in that respect, I'm struck by the fact this is the case in France particularly, but also in the UK, and I'm sure in other countries too, uh, the time-limited nature of some of the support schemes that were created back in March means that there are some very dramatic cliff edges built to current mm. policies, which will require either a huge risk, a macro risk, if governments decide to um, keep to the original timeline, or uh, very expensive extensions if they don't. And clearly, all governments are hoping to avoid that dilemma because both options look very bad. Uh, but it's far from clear, given how the pandemic seems to be developing uh, since the end of the uh, since the middle of the summer, uh, where the governments will be able to avoid uh, that dilemma. Mm -hmm. So yes, very 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 important issues. But I wanted to move, um, uh, if you agree, to an aspect that 
you didn't really refer to so far, which is the gender dimension of all of this. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's well known that women, for a whole series of reasons, have been particularly hard hit uh, because they're often employed in frontline sectors such as the health sector, which means that uh, many women have been confronted simultaneously with pressure due to the emergency health risks and very difficult work-life balance uh, issues, uh, particularly in the context of uh, school closures. Um, and also a number of other changes uh, often connected to changing patterns of, uh, of male employment as well, of which one spectacular and frightening indicator is the increase in domestic violence uh, yes. since the beginning of lockdown in, as far as I know, all countries, um, certainly in Western Europe. Uh, what what, um, what comments would you have on that? And how do you see the gender dimension of social protection being part of the problem and or part of the solution looking forward? There's two ways to look at this, and you can look at it from a positive uh, standpoint and uh, emphasize certain changes um, in gender inequality, which might actually be improved through the COVID crisis. Um, or you can look at it in a ne very negative way. Now, let's start with one of the very immediate impacts for families, which was um, the fact that during lockdown in many countries, everybody was finding themselves at home. And that meant that the, in those more traditional families, the father um, was no longer going to the office, but was spending time at home with the entire family and available to do more cooking, caring and cleaning that is usually in many countries or basically in all countries done but in, in, in most part by women. So then the question was, um, are, were, were fathers actually going to do more housework and more um, homeschooling, for example, uh, uh, than, than they did before? And were they going to participate in this extra burden? And the overwhelming view that we heard from different countries was that this was throwing women back, that it was exacerbating income inequalities, that the, the, the lack of equal sharing in unpaid work was just um, going to be made worse through, through the situation, and that basically even though fathers were at home, they weren't going to do more. Now, early data we saw on this, and there was data from Germany, which showed that in fact, there was a huge imbalance in unpaid work in families with children, uh, with women doing far more um, work at home than, than men. But the additional burden was equally shared between fathers and mothers. So that was interesting. Mm -hmm. So we, so that actually points to, to a situation where you can say, well, maybe we could also see this as a positive impulse when fathers start doing this and start doing more telework. And uh, and then maybe this is something that even beyond the COVID crisis will kind of start to, to tip the balance a little bit more in the direction of fathers taking on more family responsibilities. Also- Interesting finding. It immediately, of course, in, invites the question, whether that data was was stratified by social group, and if so, whether there were significant social differentiations in uh, the role of uh, fathers during lockdown. Intuitively, one imagines that there might have been because there are very different family structures uh, depending on levels of education and so on, but there could also be counterintuitive realities that we need to take note of. Do, do you know? 
I don't. I, I haven't seen the raw data to know exactly um, how this uh, how this worked between different socioeconomic groups. But one uh, assumption is, of course, absolutely clear. Uh, no, no. One fact is clear that not everybody can do telework, and those people who can do telework are usually those who are non-manual jobs, who are um, belong to higher socioeconomic groups. So there you already have a bias, that's for sure. Um, but uh, I think um, overall it's it's good news um, that, that fathers become more involved no matter which class they come from, because we know that throughout all socioeconomic classes, women are doing more uh, of the unpaid work than men. Are you looking at that systematically? You mentioned the German study, which sounds very interesting. Are you at the OECD looking uh, across uh, the whole membership of the organization at this kind of issue, or, or is that just Yes, clear? yes, this is something. So what we do at the OECD is we analyze time use data across countries. Um, very many countries um, have this, this type of data collection. It's a very um, complicated analysis because what countries do is they ask people to, to keep journals every day and write down how many hours they spend doing what. And now to make this comparable across countries, we have to look at the details of these time journals. We have to look at how different activities were defined. Some countries define um, uh, playing with children already as, as unpaid work, whereas others say it's leisure. So, so you have to basically go into very minute detail to harmonize all of this. But this is something that we do at the OECD uh, in regular intervals. And, and it's become a very important part of the argument why family policy is important and why without a better uh, balancing of unpaid work, we will never arrive at a better balance and balance in paid work between men and women. And we will also have great difficulties in reducing the gender pay gap, which is a direct consequence of the of the unbalance, imbalance in both unpaid and paid work. Thanks. And in terms of social protection, how, how do you see that connection? Are there social protection measures that you would um, note critically as making these kinds of problems worse because of, for instance, um, say lower pension entitlements for women on average due to different career paths and so on? So the social protection system may work as an aggravating factor to pre-existing inequalities um, at the primary level. Uh, or conversely, do you have examples to point to of really um, uh, positive uh, social protection measures that can compensate for uh, the inequalities and perhaps even serve to uh, push back against them? I think it depends first what you expect from social protection. If you think that social protection is there to equalize things that have gone wrong in the labor market, you're going to have a very hard time to provide good social protection. So this is a discussion that regularly comes up when we look at gender imbalances and gender gaps in pensions, for example. And some countries have enormous gender pension gaps, which are a direct consequence of the fact that women have stopped working over a long time that they or worked only part time, very few hours, that they made much less money even when working long in, 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 in over longer career. Um, and all of that accumulates and and uh, and turns out at the end to be a very large gender pension gap. 
Now, we believe at the OECD that the answer to this cannot be for social protection to basically undo all of this. It's just simply it's too big a task for, for social protection systems. So the, the answer has to be that everybody, men and women, should be earning their own rights in the labor market and have the possibility to um, to participate fully according to their wishes and to share also these work responsibilities over an entire career. And so you can have social protection systems which favor through, for example, individual taxation, uh, the earning of own rights and, and working uh, in own, in, in, as an own decision in, on an individual basis. But then there are some countries that have um, splitting arrangements in taxation where it's favored that one person earns a lot of money and the other person earns as little as possible because the money of the of the person who earns a lot gets distributed over the entire family and then the tax burden is very small. This, so if you have this type of family taxation model, then you're giving an incentives for second earners to participate very little in the labor market. Another example is for and this is something that's part of the single earner male household head um, model. Uh, when you insure the entire family on the basis of just one person contributing to the system, then it's very nice for the family because they have health insurance um, and disability insurance and so on um, without making any extra contributions. But of course, it doesn't really entice people, um, in that case, mostly women, because those are the ones who make less money um, to participate uh, in the labor market in their own rights. Another example of a social protection system that favors um, better sharing even of unpaid work is parental leave. More and more countries have been moving to systems where um, parental leave, which is not to be confused with maternity or paternity leave around the child, around the moment of when a child is born, but parental leave, which is over a few years or months in Scandinavian countries, it's often a year or more, that gets shared between fathers and mothers. And that there's at least a few months of this leave, which is non-transferable and only available for fathers. And with this type of model, which is increasingly common in many countries, um, you can kind of introduce the much more sharing of uh, family responsibilities when fathers stay at home, when they take care of their children. It also has a longer term impact of better sh sharing of unpaid work. Interestingly, that was on the radio just this morning in France, where uh, extending, uh, extending uh, paternal leave Mm -hmm. uh, it's not the same thing as parental leave, as you explained, is uh, is a current uh, pre-legislative project that might or might not end up getting adopted. Um, but it's uh, it's interesting that what you say chimes with uh, today's news as of mm -hmm. um, as of 10th of September. Thank you very much for the for for those comments on the on the gender dimensions. Um, we noted that last year uh, during another podcast, you mentioned uh, in conversation the social protection risks of an increasingly digital and informal economy, um, sectors that have um, undergone particular pressures and um, in in some respects expanded in the COVID economy, particularly perhaps in developing countries, but also in other parts of the world. Um, how do you see in light of um, how you're looking at the issue pre-pandemic, 
uh, the way in which the pandemic has opened up or, on the contrary, amplified uh, new opportunities or pre-existing problems in the digital slash informal economy, which of course is also um, in some ways, at least in some sectors, uh, a rather deterritorialized and globalized economy. Uh, well, partly I think we've already addressed that in the beginning, talking about self-employed people and gig workers and uh, people who drop out of the uh, employment-based social protection systems that uh, that are, are based on stable employment relationships. So uh, the digitalization and automation, um, this is actually two different effects, but digitalization has favored the emergence of a very mobile workforce of gig workers who, who work in very short-term contracts and are often operating outside of um, national uh, systems. You could have a graphic designer who is based in India and who um, provides for very small amounts of money some services overnight to uh, somebody who is uh, in the UK, for example, as the client. And since the clients are all over the world and um, there's different jurisdictions responsible, it's very difficult to have a uh, obligatory social insurance or social protection system that is somehow based on contributions to such systems. Now, there are some ideas out there um, for a global social security system where everybody would uh, ha pay a little bit more on a contract and that would somehow go into a global fund and then the global fund would tra make transfers to money to some of the uh, national systems where the people are based who are providing these services, the workers essentially, to make sure that then they get some pension entitlements and some credits in the national social security systems. Um, with digitalization, the advantage could be that um, all transactions are trackable and traceable in a much better way than it used to be. So, and you have some good examples, for example, there's a, there's a very interesting example, which is often mentioned in Indonesia, uh, where uh, the people who are motor taxi drivers uh, are obviously most of them in the informal sector uh, and they take risks because often they have not even any kind of accident or health insurance. And then the client also takes a risk. But there's an app which works like an Uber app or a taxi app, which, which many companies have nowadays. And so when you ask for a ride and you book a ride with a driver, for the duration of the ride, both you and the driver are automatically insured through accident insurance. Mm -hmm. so, so that's a good example where, in a, where you use technology to make a very simple way of, of, of having an insurance connection just for the duration of the ride without having to have a cumbersome process of people registering and, and, and being there and contributing on a regular basis. But it's something unbureaucratic and it's, it's something that other countries have been looking into, particularly in developing countries where you often don't have the infrastructure and very large informal sectors. This could be something where you use um, technology to, to expand um, systems uh, also in the informal sector. Thank you. Interesting example. Now, I'd, I'd like to come back to what we started discussing earlier, which was uh, which was basic income. Mm -hmm. uh, as you already noted, there's been um, a spike of interest in basic income schemes of various kinds. There's also been a lot of practical experience of emergency creation of such schemes, even where they were not part of the pre-existing 
package and perhaps uh, even went contrary to uh, the, the spirit in which um, social protection systems had traditionally been developed. At the same time, there are a million varieties of basic income, even more than of tomato ketchup. Mm -hmm. and it's quite important to uh, distinguish the different uh, aspects depending on whether this is seen more as a citizen entitlement, more as an income support scheme uh, with a minimum character, whether it is completely unconditional or um, inscribed in various kinds of conditionality um, and so on. How it, well, the extent to which it is uh, taxable, the extent to which it can be combined with uh, income from uh, work and uh, so on. Uh, obviously, the unconditional universal citizen basic income at more than subsistence level is just one version of this, which doesn't really exist anywhere, uh, but is popular with uh, with some theorists. Uh, how how would you um, set that wide range of options uh, within the real world solutions that you've seen emerging in response to the crisis? And um, do you think this is something that beyond the emergency and beyond the places that have been able to find the political support for it in the emergency context, uh, do you think this is something that could be generalized as a potential model for how to respond to some of the deficiencies of um, employment-based and even worse, employer-based social protection? Uh, thank you very much, John, for pointing out that there's a lot of confusion around the discussion of universal basic income, because uh, as you said, it has to be universal, it has to be basic and unconditional, basically. Uh, that's what, what the characteristic of this model is for, for universal basic income. In fact, many models, many, many schemes which, which are advertised as such, by, even by governments, turn out to be um, minimum income schemes which are targeted either to particular groups, for example, young people or old people, many countries, in many particularly emerging economies or developing countries, um, mostly any minimum income schemes are pretty much limited to very older people because, uh, and even then they're just very basic because there's a kind of recognition that it's impossible for poor older people to work and, uh, and that they, they really are a particularly vulnerable group. But uh, very often, in fact, these um, minimum income schemes uh, are, are schemes that are based on conditionalities, on income testing, on asset testing, and, and only are there for a certain group of the population. The, the, the real definition of universal basic income is almost kind of an utopian one, meaning that you would pay everybody in the country uh, uh, an income which is basically just above poverty level to make sure that they can still sustain themselves and eat and then are not forced necessarily to go out and work, um, that there's much more liberty in deciding how you, how you work or not. And indeed, those recent um, experiments that have been done, for example, in Finland, were there uh, to test whether people would still go out and try to find work and uh, if they got a basic income, or whether they would then just content themselves with that, with that income stream and say, I don't actually need more and I'm not going to look for work. So, so it, wasn't, it wasn't really to test whether this is the best thing to do or whether this was going to replace any other benefits, but it was a, really an experiment with, with a relatively limited scale of people uh, 
to see how they would react. And um, pretty much they didn't find much difference in behavior, except that people were less stressed when they received the basic income and uh, were overall slightly happier. But apart from that, they didn't find any huge differences. Now, I think it's a wonderful idea. It sounds like something that everybody should be for uh, and strive to, to, to introduce. But um, there's a big debate also what, what the level of such a basic income would be. Because uh, just being above the poverty level is certainly something that's, that's not uh, super attractive, I would say, but it's still something that's very expensive according to our calculations. We at the OECD, we, we did a few simulations and um, came up with uh, different uh, limits that we would set for such an income and looked at how much that would cost in terms of reshifting all kinds of different benefits. and. Uh, and how much tax increases that would still require. And it turned out that for most reasonable assumptions, it would actually require quite a bit of um, quite a bit of tax increases and and still you would not arrive at hugely generous benefits. Now, if you of course say that you're going to switch your entire social protection system to uh, to basic income, including pensions including pensions, then you could have quite a mass of money to redistribute. But I think it's very difficult for most people to envisage that you would get only only a very basic pension um, instead of something that's earnings related. Now, there are some OECD countries which traditionally have had that. If you take a country like New Zealand, for example, there is only a basic pension and there's no obligation to have anything beyond that, although most people have in additional um, savings and, and employer-based schemes. So, uh, so it's an interesting debate, but but uh, one that um, lacks clarification, lacks clarity, and uh, and turns out to be very often about social assistance schemes rather than really about a universal basic income. Yeah, it also has um, knock-on consequences on things like asset prices. Uh, that that uh, have to be taken to consider taken into consideration, if it just leads, for instance, to uh, inflation of housing costs uh, through various market mechanisms, it can easily end up being a kind of vicious circle, uh, yes. where the money gained is immediately lost uh, through um, uh, various kinds of scarcities. Anyway, um, do you think that um, in terms of real uh, evidence? from actual applications of particular schemes with their different characteristics. It's possible now to make a judgment on what works and what doesn't, or is the evidence just still too limited and the timeline too short? What works, what doesn't, in which respect for, uh, for basic income? Yeah, in, in, in terms of how to design a basic, basic income scheme that in the real world, given all the constraints, can uh, provide tangible benefits uh, and remain affordable uh, within the uh, political and economic constraints? I think it's very hard to say that because it all depends on the scope, on the level, and on, uh, on the funding sources that are at disposal of different countries. And there were some, some instances where very rich countries, I believe Alaska has a basic income, which was basically funded out of um, oil revenues, where yeah. everybody received um, received a basic benefit. Um, that's, of course, if you have a jurisdiction, a country or a region or a state 
which has um, a very stable source of money and um, and has enough and has maybe also not too many citizens that you can afford to 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 pay a basic income. That's that's very good, but it's hard to see, for example, how a large um, emerging economy. Uh, I don't know, take Mexico or take India, could pay a, a meaningful basic income to everybody. And when I say meaningful, would be really that that this is something that is more than just a token cash benefit, but but really an income that enables people to maybe not live uh, in in luxury, but uh, but that that is something that that fulfills the the objectives of dignity and. Um, and uh, and having a having a, a basic uh, the possibility of of funding what you need uh, in order to to have a proper living, so so it's difficult to see how this could be done at a large scale. The next question is also: Would such a basic income replace all the benefits that social protection systems? have integrated over the years, and I believe for good reason. There are special benefits for parents with children because their needs are higher. There are special benefits for people who have disabilities because they have specific needs that other people don't have. Um, there, so there's, there's specific variations in benefits which have been introduced in order to be able to respond to specific needs of vulnerable groups in all countries. Now, would a basic income just say everybody's the same, everybody gets the same regardless, or would it be a basic income that in addition provides all of those other benefits? And if the answer is yes to that second question, then of course it becomes even more expensive. So it's kind of hard to see how this could work in practice um, in, 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 terms of, uh, in terms of having something that is really meaningful. I think I think you could devise models of paying a basic income to everybody, but I'm sure that many people would be disappointed because it wouldn't be at the level what they imagine. The experiments that are out there now, there's another one, at, uh, in, I believe in Germany, where everybody gets paid a thousand euros per month. That's wonderful, but could, could this be possible at a large scale? Uh, and would, for example, people be ready to abolish certain other systems like pensions to say then everybody gets 1,000 euros, then then that could change the situation. But I'm not quite sure that people would be ready, um, and particularly higher income people for whom uh, a basic income would be a very, very small replacement of their previous income, that they would be ready to go for that. Certainly, and uh, thank you very much for, for going into detail on it. I think this points to the fact that uh, this is an area where many organizations, uh, OECD, UNESCO, many others probably have a shared uh, interest in um, developing clearer agendas, perhaps uh, frameworks for experimentation, frameworks for learning from experimentation, not because there's an existing prescription that could be rolled out. You've explained very clearly that there isn't, uh, but because the issues around the idea of a basic income, including the known problems with excessive conditionality, high administrative costs, uh, non-take-up, uh, discriminatory processes within social protection systems, uh, poor coverage when systems are too complex and so on, uh, and uh, the kinds of social impacts that have been seen from the pandemic crisis 
point to the need at least minimally to rethink things, mm-hmm. perhaps depending on whether the rethinking is convincing, uh, test uh, options in the real world and perhaps even move to um, possibly radical policy change on the basis of successful experimentations. That's a lot of steps down the line, but yeah. if we never start, we'll never get to the to the following steps. Yeah, but I think it's already happening. I mean, there's there's different experiments running which look at different aspects of this whole equation, and and um, and there's just just a new one starting now in Germany. I think they're they're. Uh, with the with the German Institute for Economic Research, which is supposed to evaluate the experiment, which should be very very interesting, um, and and so I think we we just as you say we we would have to go step by step to take a look at what are the different issues connected to this, and um, how far are societies also willing to go in terms of making such payments equal, and then replacing other systems with uh, for me, that's the biggest question. You know, you take a country like Australia. Australia does not have social insurance; doesn't exist. And casual workers are paid a wage supplement to make up for the fact that they don't have employer-based social protection, for example. It's very interesting. Now, would you go to a European country and tell them uh, we think it's a good idea to abolish social insurance and just have a basic benefit or just means-tested public benefits and everything else is private? I think that that would not go very far. So we also have to take account of the fact that each country has its grown social insurance, social protection, or social assistance system. But one thing that has become very clear through the COVID crisis, I think, uh, is that um, to have no minimum income scheme in countries is no longer an acceptable way to go. So, so the fact that there were people who found themselves without any income whatsoever, even in rich countries, I think was a shock to many people around the world. And even in rich countries, you would suddenly see people lining up for food assistance, which is something that that really some shockwaves. Thank you very much. This has been a, a great conversation. Uh, I think we could probably continue, but uh, unfortunately, our, our time is up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed it, and I hope we'll have the opportunity to uh, to talk again.